As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. In today's episode, we are sliding in and tackling your listener questions. My name is Ryan Bailey, and joining me today is a man who's enjoying an international break where he doesn't have to think about Man United for a few days, Taylor Rockwell. I mean, but then you mentioned them, and thus we're in the conundrum. This is like Schrodinger's Man United. You mentioned them, and then they exist again. Schrodinger's Manchester United, yeah, the... uh... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the, the long-awaited second experiment. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> Ryan, I feel like I may have thrown Ryan completely with that response, and I apologize <laughs> for it. Also, hi, Ryan. How you doing? I'm very good, Taylor. <laughs> what I hope today is that your uptake in listener question responses is higher than Man United players' uptake in the COVID vaccine, which we've learned is very low. Uh, headline uh, from Uh-oh. the Daily Fail, Manchester United's lack of COVID vaccine uptake among players is seen as problematic within the Premier League and rivals are becoming frustrated as stars are urged <laughs> to get their jabs. That's a long headline, but the point is, Taylor, hey. not great. Not great. And like we've reached the point where I then wonder, like, was that leaked by the club to distract from other things that are happening that aren't great? Like, you never know. You never know with with Manchester United. uh, Always a fun thing to talk about. Thanks, Ryan. You're welcome. And I I did enjoy Solskjaer's (laughs) quote saying uh, his his quote was, let's just say I'm double jaxed. Um, Oh, okay. That's a response. Good for you, dude. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I expected his response to be like, well, you know, we're waiting for the vaccine to really uh, have the impact we think it can have. But right now we're pleased with the way things are going and we're uh, optimistic about the future. Is that a generic enough response to a specific question about why a club isn't doing something? (laughs) Something like that. Well, Taylor, rest assured that nearly two thirds of players within the Premier League have yet to receive both vaccines, while many have flat out refused according to the mirror and they're all off um, in different countries mixing with different groups uh, on international break right now so that's that's cool yeah perfect we are off to an optimistic start <laughs> all right let's get more optimistic and yeah. produce our most optimistic member of staff a man who's filled with glee today because his garish rb leipzig away jersey has arrived in the mail Graham Rutherford. <laughs> hello ryan yep i'm here to bring the optimism that is my job on this podcast is it not 
<laughs> Definitely. Um, how are you feeling about your new addition to your shirt collection, which you shared on the TSS WhatsApp earlier? I'm very pleased with it. I'm wearing it right now. I'm. Uh, you have to break it in. It's like shoes. You know, you need to, a new shirt, you need to, a new jersey, you need to break it in. So, yes, I am a full capitalist today by wearing my RB Leipzig shirt. <laughs> <laughs> you, you also uh, mentioned on the chat that you liked camping or you love camping. I was thinking um, if you ever get lost in the wilderness, you could use that shirt as a beacon to flag down helicopters. It's quite bright. Yeah, I mean, that's why I bought the tie-dye PSG one from last season was for that specific reason. Ah, excellent, excellent. When, when you're in the Highlands and you're camping, is that what you do in the Highlands? I have no idea. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd like to say I know what people do in the Highlands, but I, I don't really know. I, I'm a city boy, really. <laughs> Wonderful stuff. Enjoy your shirt, the latest in your expanding collection, Graham. Also here completing our foursome is a man who's undoubtedly aware that this week is the conclusion of the UEFA Nations League, something I wasn't aware of until this morning. Joe Lowry. <laughs> I only know that, Ryan, because I scrolled over a couple days on FOTMOB to see what games were coming up, and then I remembered it was the international break. And uh, yeah, Nations League. Yay, yay, yay. Nation, yeah, Nations that was League. my response, Joe. But then you look at the fixtures. It's, the, it's like the semi-finals this week. Pretty uh, good. There's Italy, yeah. Spain on the day we were recording <laughs> Wednesday. And then we got Belgium, France following up the final on Sunday. Why have I only just found out about this, Joe? That's the question. Maybe that says more about me than it does about the uh, Nations League, I suppose. I mean, it might. And I, I do kid. A lot of these games are fun, and I actually kind of like the idea of Nations League. And I, I enjoy the fact that it does bring in some more competitive structure to some of these these games all across the world. Obviously, we see it in Europe and in CONCACAF as well. It's it's kind of fun, Ryan. And these are going to be some some baller games. I think I was paying attention to the last edition more. There was a team in there that gave me a vested interest last time who were absent Scotland? this time, Joe. Maybe, maybe that is the reason. Wimbledon? Taylor, were you aware? Were you aware of Nations League happening right now? Always. Um, my, my, my Scotland loyalties make me always ever vigilant. What's that got to do with being good in the Nations League? Oh, you're setting them <laughs> up, Taylor. <laughs> I'm sorry, Graham. I didn't mean to. You you really expertly sidestepped the fact that he began this by calling your shirt garish, by the way. I think that was really well done, but I'm sorry that I led him right back to a Scotland dig. <laughs> I, I meant garish in a good way because I like a bright shirt as well, if I'm honest. I've got, I like an away shirt. I like a garish away shirt. I said garish again. Is it negative? Maybe it's negative. I didn't mean it that way, Graham. <laughs> well, there speaks a true party boy. <laughs> <laughs> Party boys all around. You say party boy, it just makes me think of Jackass and the, the uh, <laughs> yep. gentleman who used to pull his trousers off with reckless abandon. Yeah, well, that's funniest, baby. That's what I was thinking of when I called you that. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm not sure if that's a 2021 thing to do anymore, pulling off your trousers in public, if I'm honest. Uh, we might have to reassess yeah. that one. We might have to rethink that nickname, Graham. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, possibly. Um, <laughs> this is a listener questions show. If you do have a question for us, totalsoccershow.com slash questions to submit like the listeners who have done so in this episode. Shall we get going, gents? Why don't we? With one from Russell Varner, who, if it, it is the Russell Varner I know, is a fan in Charlotte. Hello, Russell. Growing up, says Russell, it seemed like representing your country was the highest honour a player could achieve. Nowadays, though, I feel like club is placed over country. Do you agree or disagree? And why? Interesting question from Russell, to which I'm inclined to agree, Taylor. I think um, it is, of course, an honour to represent your country, but maybe, just maybe, it doesn't hold the same weight and it doesn't mean the same thing as it used to. My theory, Taylor, is... 
maybe the world's a bit different now. Maybe borders and boundaries are a bit less defined. The world's a more global place. Um, you know, we've got lots of players who have to make the difficult choice between representing one country or another with uh, with mixed heritage involved. I think, in, certainly in my worldview, the world is less nationalistic and less jingoistic in many ways. And you combine that with the fact that clubs are more powerful. They are the ones who play the, uh, pay the salaries after all. And if you asked Taylor, let's say you asked a random Premier League player if they wanted to be in the Champions League final or the World Cup final, I'm not convinced the reflex answer would be the World Cup final anymore, Taylor. I, I mostly agree with you. I kind of disagree about the nationalism and jingoism aspect. But I, I do think that overall, the kind of growth of the game has diluted the importance of major international tournaments. The World Cup is is still in that conversation like as the biggest tournament, but to your point, would you rather be in a World Cup final or the Champions League final? I think that is you're gonna get more mixed answers. And I know for me growing up, like when I'm you know, shooting on the goal in the backyard, I'm trying, the, the little goal, I should add, uh, that it was me, like, pretending to score a goal in the World Cup. And I feel like kids nowadays are probably, oh, man, I sound old there. But, like, it's uh, my guess would be that there are more American kids pretending to be Messi or pretending to be uh, a Liverpool player or something like that than there are scoring goals for the U.S. And I think a large part of that is because I think about, like, the 94 World Cup team and that squad that came together the biggest crowds that they were going to be playing in front of coming through the college game and the various different professional leagues that were existing in the United States at that time, the biggest crowds you're going to get are on the international stage wearing a U.S. jersey. And we've talked about this before, but Christian Pulisic going to play a friendly in Cuba at their second stadium where there's limited water and there's nobody in the stands I don't think that's going to have the impact of playing for Dortmund, where he was at that time, with 70,000 people in the stands every single weekend. And so I think there is certainly an idea that like now that there's more familiarization with the global game, maybe there's less of an interest in the World Cup more consistently. And I think also with that is the idea that the World Cup used to be this time, I mean, going back decades, but it used to be this thing where you'd get suddenly this like Hungary team would show up and be really exciting or Brazil would have a new formation that no one had seen coming. And it was this sort of opportunity to see what other countries were doing, how other countries were experimenting. And then that would sort of spread from there. And to me, that feels more so that the club uh, side of the game has taken more of a leading role in determining tactics and prevailing styles. And then that leads into the World Cup. And so I, I, I think it's become less of a sort of cutting edge we're seeing all these different groups come together that we wouldn't normally see players coming together that we wouldn't get an opportunity to watch on the weekend which we can now find in any any number of cable packages and so i think it just takes away some of the import of the world cup it's still an incredibly important thing but i think it probably is slightly less important which means representing the country is slightly less of an important thing see i I was just going to jump in and say, see, I, I think the, the World Cup and major tournaments in general kind of mean as much as they've, they've ever meant. I, maybe that's just me as a Scot having seen my team at a major tournament for the first time in my adult lifetime. But even before that tournament, you know, Che Adams, I don't think it's a coincidence that after Scotland qualified, Che Adams decides to switch his nationality to, to play for Scotland. You saw how much it meant to Lionel Messi to win the Copa America over the summer, for example. Um, and so I think I totally agree that when, for the most part, it is club over country, but yet there's still that distinction for me when it comes to major tournaments. 
that they mean, even to players, I think they mean more than, I still think, Ryan, that players would pick the World Cup final over the Champions League final. I totally get what you're saying. I think the way that the sport is marketed now with the Premier League and the Champions League being kind of the pinnacle of the sport has kind of, has blurred a lot of lines and what players aim for. But I still think the World Cup and major tournaments are seen as something that's separate to the rest of the international game. Well, Graham, how do you... Uh, let me put it like this then. Do you think that argument will change as World Cups go by? We've got Qatar coming up, which might leave a sour taste uh, for some uh, you know, due to it being in Qatar. Mm-hmm. Then in 2026, we've got a 48-team competition in North America. Yeah. Um, does that is that going to dilute the importance when like even teams like Scotland can easily qualify for it? Twenty six. <laughs> well, we're we're uh, making quite the job of qualifying for that World Cup, so I'm not sure it's <laughs> it's that easy. Um, possibly, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. Yeah, possibly the dilution of it could have a a, a negative impact. Also, if they're holding it ev- once every two years, then as as has been proposed and seems like that has a real chance of actually happening, then that might also kind of reduce the diminish the sparkle a little bit for players but yeah I, yeah I, th- I think I think um players still value the international game and I, th- I think a lot of it I'm kind of repeating myself a little bit but I think a lot of it comes down to the packaging and the branding of the club game and I think we've seen with UEFA recently try and rebrand international soccer like you see with club soccer so the Nations League is probably the aforementioned Nations League is probably the best example of this, and I don't know whether that's been successful or not. Given that I also didn't know that the semi-finals of that <laughs> tournament were happening until I started the research for this podcast, so there's a long there's a long way to go, I think. Yeah, Graham. Graham one thing one thing there with your point about Che Adams is like I I think. I, I agree largely that I think major tournaments are still going to have a large amount of appeal. But like to, to Russell's question, though, it, it, to some extent, you, what you're saying about Che Adams is an argument that people do care less about representing their country because it's only when there's an opportunity to potentially go to one of those tournaments do people then sort of want to put on that jersey. And I think there's always been that. Right. That allegation, I wouldn't say I buy into it, but that idea that people want to play for the U.S. because – you might not make the Dutch team, or if you're Norwegian, Norway might not make it, but if you can play for the United States, there's a chance you're going to go, and so then you will. And so I think sometimes the somewhat cynical approach to things becomes like the more dominant narrative. I think you're right, though, that when there's an opportunity to put on your country's jersey and play in a World Cup, I, I do think that it's probably the most... If not like the biggest honor, then the that the most excitement I can imagine a player getting is putting on that shirt and playing in a in a World Cup game in front of a packed stadium that probably carries a lot of weight and is the highlight of probably a lot of people's careers. Taylor, on that note, then maybe the answer to the question depends on whose shoes you're in. Uh, mm. Using like your Pulisic example, let's say like Afonso Davies. Um, he's probably going to be more excited about winning Bundesliga and Champions Leagues than going into a World Cup qualification cycle and playing with all due respect, Mexico and Jamaica this week, or, or going in the Gold Cup, because um, in a normal World Cup cycle, his nation might not necessarily go to the big the big event. So maybe the, if you're Neymar mm-hmm. and you have the weight of an entire nation on your shoulders yeah. and you're going to World Cup and it's a, it's a different league, so to speak. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, yeah, but then we get into the, like, it depends on the perspective, because there's also the idea that maybe Alfonso Davies wants to be the Canadian player that brings Canada to a World Cup and performs that way. And for Neymar, 
eh, Brazil's going to go to a World Cup. What do I care? I get to be in Brazil. I'm going to go home and, like, you know, party and then play a game. So there probably is an idea that it, it really is just sort of in the eye of the beholder. It depends on the per- person we're talking about. And if anything, I, I'm coming around to the idea that the, it does still matter. I think it's just how you get there that that's where we see – uh, do I really want to leave London to go play a, a World Cup qualifier away in Honduras or uh, like Panama, a cur- currently a red list country? I don't know. So maybe it's it's like aspects of the international game have been sort of ju- just you know, taken down a notch. And some of like the overscheduling of friendlies and the frustration with international breaks that don't necessarily need to happen. Maybe that's part of where this is coming from versus when we're getting into World Cup qualifying and is Argentina going to make it? Will Italy qualify? You get those narratives that becomes more exciting. And I think the thrill of being the player that could push your team to that next level is still a pretty strong factor. You know who still cares about international soccer? Those Argentinian players in the last international break who broke Premier League rules to to Argentina and then had to spend time training in Croatia on their way back because they weren't allowed into England. Well, the moral of that story is don't care about it then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not sure if uh, <laughs> FIFA will be too pleased about that if their mission is to get people, <laughs> players to care more about international soccer. Yeah, uh, Joe, I think I'm maybe I bring my own biases into this because I'm not the biggest fan of international soccer. And I certainly don't like international breaks. I feel like the Premier League was on fire this weekend and so was the rest of Europe and then, then we have to take a pause. I, Joe, I think like, like many people, I understand that the standard of international soccer isn't quite as good as the domestic game. It's not what we watch every week. I have my feelings about the nationalistic nature of it as well. Where do you stand, Joe? I think the top, I, I agree, I think, with largely where you guys have, have gotten here. I think the top, top level of club soccer, the prestige there is greater than any particular level of international soccer, right? I think the amount of money that goes into those games, the amount of eyes that are on those games consistently outweighs probably any individual aspect of the international game. But I, I think it totally depends on the person, right? I was trying to place myself in this situation of of being in a Champions League final or being in a World Cup final or even just on, on a more mundane level, getting a cap for a national team or breaking in with a top European team. And I have no idea what I would be more excited about. I, I don't know that I would be able to choose, right? Because there are two hugely different aspects of a career. And and I don't know what individual players that are actually at that level and have that experience would say. I'm guessing you would get a ton of really varied responses. And so again, I think I think the top levels of club trump top levels of country, but I don't know how we would get any narrower than that without actually being in those players' shoes. Yeah, I think Joe, I think what you've I've been trying to figure this out, why I feel so conflicted. And I think what we've stumbled upon is that basically, yeah, it still matters for a large amount of people and it's still this really important thing. So then why is there a prevailing feeling that it doesn't matter, that it isn't as important? And I wonder if maybe it's FIFA itself, that the sort of cynicism and frustration with an organization that I would say is pretty corrupt, uh, that my opinion, lawyers take note. Uh, but like, I, I think that's probably part of it, that when you move and, it, and it, there's an argument that's not a new thing. There have always been allegations of bribery and uh, maybe some patting on the back and things like that. But uh, but I think that's m- maybe an aspect of it is just as we see more frustration with the governing body and with changes to the game and changes to formats that theoretically are meant to help grow the game and help spread the game around the world. It's already pretty spread, I would say. Uh, It feels more like it's an opportunity to make money and to kind of profit off of these things and not always to protect player safety or look out for the individual players or to make it 
what it's supposed to be, which is sort of a global party that's available to all. I, I wonder if maybe that's where it is, that the cynicism about FIFA sort of colors our feeling about international soccer a bit more than it used to. I don't know, though. I don't know that, at least for me, my cynicism about FIFA is all that different from my cynicism about other governing bodies in the sport at the club level, right? I mean, I, I'm not sure that that's a huge divide. Again, I would go back to the individual person and maybe some distinction between upper levels of both of these different types of soccer. But I mean, Taylor, you, you could be onto something on an individual level as well. Yeah, definitely so. Uh, an excellent debate and one that is evolving, I would say, gents. And maybe, maybe our opinions will evolve uh, with time. Thank you very much, Russell, for that question. We'll be back after these short messages with more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, we are back. We are taking listener questions just like this one from Matt Cox. Hello from San Diego, says Matt. With, the, uh, with Barcelona's financial troubles, why hasn't a majority share of the club been bought by someone, a nation state or an oil company or a tech billionaire or someone else like other Super League clubs, if that's what we're calling Barcelona? <laughs> I assume there must be some La Liga issue with that, but I've not heard this discussed, says Matt. Uh, Graham, as far as my research uh, shows, there's no La Liga issue with um, mm-hmm. foreign ownership of this nature. Valencia, owned by Peter Lim, have yep. done have been uh, since 2014. Um, uh, Malaga, Malaga, owned by a Qatari yep. investor as well, uh, and have been. And there was suspicions they would become the next Man City, but their Qatari investor hasn't quite uh, backed them in the same way. The sticking point, Graham, with Barcelona is the nature of their setup rather than the uh, uh, the the idea of foreign ownership, Graham. Yeah, that's that's hundred percent right. It's to do with the the ownership structure of the club. So Barcelona are owned by one hundred eighty thousand members that they they um, call socios, um, and they are in a, the Barcelona as a as a club or an association rather than a, a PLC. Um, and each of those members pay an annual fee. Those, a lot of those, those memberships, those shares are inherited. So there's no actual existing procedure to buy those shares. So obviously, uh, another club, you would buy shares, you know, a club that's, that's floated on the stock exchange, for example, you would, you would buy shares that way. There's not a, there's not a process to do that with Barcelona. It's not, it's not something that is, that is permitted. Who, who do you go to, to, to buy those shares? It's, it, it, it just doesn't really, it can't really happen. And that's similar to Real Madrid as well. Not quite the same, but similar in that they're, they've got kind of members, um, who form the, the basis of the club. There's not a, a single, powerful shareholder shareholder it is possible to be powerful and have great influence as a rich person as at barcelona you know juan laporta is a, is a very powerful lawyer for example the current president but as i say there's no current procedure for a, a takeover at, at the club like there there are at many other clubs that are on the stock exchange that's right so uh, graham essentially if a shake or someone else wants to buy a barcelona all the members would have to approve of that 
And they ain't going to do that. So that's basically yep. why Barcelona won't be for sale. And also right. they would they would have to approach each of those members and mm. <laughs> there's no procedure to like, you know, they'd have to find an email address or wait outside their house or send them a WhatsApp <laughs> message. Uh, yes, very, very messy. Yeah, particularly when, uh, uh, nice use of messy, by the way, uh, particularly <laughs> difficult when WhatsApp is down as well, Graham, which is the, uh, the uh, communication <laughs> method of Europe. Uh, and, and becoming a member, by the way, you or I couldn't just do it. Uh, at Barcelona, you have to demonstrate a familial tie to an existing Barcelona yep. member or serve a probation period as a commitment card carrier. And as you say, it only costs a few hundred euros a year to get that card. But you have to, you know, only the members, by the way, are allowed season tickets. But because there's, I think you said 180,000, Graham, there's still a waiting list in that massive, massive stadium that they play in as well. Uh, Taylor, quote here from Sandra Russell, who was the president in 2011 at Barcelona. He said, Barcelona is not a business. It's a feeling. Oh, boy. We're not owned by any We're an association. We do not have clients. I will never put a game on at 12 noon for the Chinese audience. I think they've done that. Yeah. We don't want to to open up our market not to forget our roots. While I'm the president, Barcelona will never, ever be for sale. Well, they're certainly going about it the right way to not being a business. (laughs) (laughs) I think he also was, was delivering those remarks. I think I read that same article. And I think he was delivering those remarks while simultaneously defending moving from having no sponsor or UNICEF on the shirts, which they, I think, did out of charity, to having Qatar Foundation on their shirts. So while he's talking about how they'll never change and they're rooted in history, he's also talking about why it's okay to change and how you don't have to be rooted in history. An interesting approach to uh, delivering public declarations. Yeah. According to Marca today, by the way, Barcelona still owes 115 million euros from yeah. their recent signings. Uh, that is 39 for Pjanic, 32 for Frankie de Jong, 16 for Sergino Dest, and 13 for Coutinho. Uh, that's still outstanding. 39 so I just, I, for Pjanic is still yes. outstanding. He's on loan at Besiktas and didn't play at all. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Good. Uh, it's a well-run business, Graham, as we've established. But um, we, we just have to hope those 180,000 members aren't financially liable when this club goes into the hole because uh, they, they might all be getting a big bill. At the risk of like t- taking us off on a tangent, we don't have to go down this road. Uh, just reading about the way Barcelona has been run and about other clubs, we're going to do a one-on-one later, but other clubs sort of not being particularly well-run either, combined with the recent like Pandora Papers release, I really do just feel like maybe like debt and money is all just a scam that like the people who have all the power have told us we have to worry about because it seems like a lot of clubs really not worried about being massively in debt in a way that if I like get slightly in debt, I have like panic attacks and Barcelona, I can't imagine how this is. So the only thing I can come up with is that debt isn't real, money isn't real, and uh, we're just all being uh, sold uh, like some sort of charade that everybody else knows they don't have to worry I was about. I was reading this morning that Barcelona are lining up a January move for Raheem Sterling and my reaction was just the the LeBron James to J.R. Smith meme you know why oh boy oh boy all right all right yeah um, um it's interesting to think about Spanish and maybe even like Italian clubs as well, why there aren't more uh, foreign ownership uh, groups coming in and and swooping them up. My understanding um, is that, you know, if you buy a mid-table 
Premier League side and keep them in the Premier League, you're pretty much golden. That's a money-making machine due to the, the sponsorships and, and the TV deals. Because the TV deals in Spain, for example, weighted so heavily towards Barcelona and Madrid, it makes it rather less attractive to get a mid-table Spanish team because the, your remuneration will not be as high shall we say. So that may be an explanation as to why it's not as common in Spain and maybe at some other clubs on the continent. Um, Joe, anything to add to this? I'm not sure we've heard from you on this one. Uh, I just copy-paste everything that Graham said with his initial answer, slide (laughs) it in here. I mean, I can also note Barcelona tweeted out earlier today from their official Twitter account that they they lost 481 million euros in the 2020-2021 season. The fact that that number does not surprise me uh, is kind of wild at this point. And no matter how much we talk about Barcelona and some of their ineptitude, it is, I don't know, at this point it's just normal, which is insane. I, I go back to there was the SNL sketch where it's like three political pundits all talking about what Trump did and what Trump said. And then Keenan Thompson is the fourth who at the end of every conversation just says, like, ain't gonna happen, ain't gonna matter. And every single time is proven correct. Uh, and that is sort of how I feel whenever we talk about Barcelona, when it's like, oh, this could be the thing that breaks them. It's like, no, it won't. They're going to keep buying players and somehow have even more debt and it will end up being all the same. They'll, they'll suddenly unearth another 100,000 socios who can pay even more money, uh, but they won't be from Qatar. We've already stressed that. So at least we know that part of things. And if you suspected Barcelona were in the hole they're in because they're run by amateurs, they are. 180,000 of them. Uh, so there's your answer <laughs> for that one. Uh, thank you very much for the question. Raghav Gupta is up next. In light of Cristiano Ronaldo's return, who are some other players whose off-field actions make it harder to root for them or outright impossible to root for them. Um, Taylor, let's come to you first. We should probably define the uh, nature of the distinction of off-field actions and Mm -hmm. the difference between them and why it may influence our thoughts on certain players. Yeah, uh, because Raghav uh, is alluding to the credible rape allegations against Cristiano Ronaldo. So the idea then that it makes it much harder to discuss a player when they are doing very big things on the pitch because of what has happened off the pitch, but then you get into, or what has allegedly happened off the pitch, but then you get into sort of the degrees of that because you have some players who are, who have been to prison or are still in prison for off-field actions versus the one that I would go to would be a lot of the current Brazil team vocally supporting Bolsonaro and in some cases still continue to support them. It's, you kind of have degrees of what makes players like harder to embrace. And so I think, yeah, you kind of have to break it into categories a little bit. And so I would say there's things like the political views of certain players that I think can be frustrating. Or I think it was Cassano uh, making uh, homophobic remarks at one point. Like Antonio Cassano is this player who has all these legendary stories about him and was a really interesting player who seemed to move clubs every season or every other season. But then, but then has these remarks that make him less of this sort of, romantic like eccentric figure and into a more homophobic figure and so i think there's that but then you get into uh let's say ryan giggs for example and the accusations allegations against him and how much that changes the perception of a player who at a certain point was this squeaky clean he works hard he's this industrious guy who bombs down the wing and he and he does whatever sir alex ferguson wants uh even if it means not playing for wales 
Yeah, it's, it certainly can taint your opinion of a player um, uh, when you learn of their off-field actions, no matter what they are, if, if, if they come within that kind of sphere, Taylor. And by the way, if you just heard that siren pulling up, it's the TSS fire truck of lawyers yep. who've just uh, pulled up for this question and eagerly listening to uh, what we say here. But um, for me, it's there's, there's a certain group of players who have become very controversial because of their off-field actions, mostly because they've committed violent or despicable crimes. Uh, Lee Hughes was a player who was at West Brom, for example. Uh, He caused death by dangerous driving of a family during a car crash. He fled the scene uh, and he went to prison. Um, When he got out of prison, he played for 12 clubs. 12 clubs signed him after that. And uh, if one of those clubs had been my my club, I'm not sure I could have stood by that. Uh, There's a few other players like uh, Marlon King, for example, who was at Hull and Watford and a few others. He went to jail three times for crimes ranging from fraud to sexual assault. Um, Then there's a few others who maybe are disliked in my mind because maybe it's more stuff they do on the field. Like someone like Luis Suarez, um, who has, was got an eight-game ban for um, racism directed towards Patrice Evra. Uh, that is pretty uh, unpalatable, as is his general demeanour and cheating. I can't sympathise with him or I can't feel happy for him if he's having a good time at Atleti at the moment because of that and the fact that I know he's a rampant cheat. Um, in general on the field as well and then you get into the unpleasantness of uh, you know from that era John Terry with the Anton Ferdinand uh, situation with the racism there and off the field with John Terry as well by all accounts you know we, we know he parks in disabled parking bays and he's that kind of guy so I can't really enjoy his oove Graham uh, for those kind of reasons so who else are we thinking for this one Graham? So another sub- subsection of this for me um, because I'm a big uh, Scottish socialist, as we all are in this country, I guess, is uh, players who have been charged with tax fraud. Seems to be a, a subsection re- recently, particularly in Spanish soccer. You're so, not saying Barcelona. <laughs> yeah, but uh, there's a number of Barcelona. Yeah. I, w- I read this week that Pep Guardiola has been named in the Panama Papers as someone who allegedly had held a, a bank account in Andorra during his time as Barcelona boss to funnel funds through to pay less tax. Um, that doesn't sit well with me. Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo, of course, were both charged with uh, tax fraud when they were when they were in Spain. Obviously, it's in some of these cases you don't know whether it's the the player themselves or the or the the team around them, but I, I think maybe that's given them a little bit too much uh, credit. They employ the team around them. Surely, at some level, it's being passed in front of them, even if they're not proposing these things. So that I, that's another subsection that that I would uh, I would mention. Um, who else would I mention? I guess when you're talking about violent crimes, Ryan, you know, Joy Barton. He was one of the first players that sprung to mind when I was thinking about this. He's twice been convicted of of violent crimes. And those are just the kind of criminally offensive violent acts. There's been a number of other incidents, including a, an alleged attack on another manager when he was Fleetwood Town manager. So if you're wondering whether Joy Barton has matured in any way, there's your answer. He's still up to the same shenanigans as a, as, as a manager. One player I would mention, this is where it, there are slight grey areas on how long a period of time passes before someone has reformed, but Duncan Ferguson... He received a three-month prison term in 1994 for headbutting a, a St. Mirren player when he was playing up here in Scotland. He was fined for headbutting a police officer was and was fined for punching and kicking a supporter who was on crutches. So, not great, uh, all in all, really. However, 
I I really like Duncan Ferguson, not for any of those reasons, I must clarify, but because I feel like he has matured and he's learned from his mistakes and the criminal justice system is built to allow for the past path to reform. And in my opinion, I feel like Ferguson, given that that was, what, 30 years ago now or something, you know, close to 30 years ago now, um, I feel like he's achieved that to a certain extent. So that's that's where kind of reform is, is a bit of a grey area. Well, that uh, issue of reform raises an interesting point, doesn't it? And if you even think of someone like Joey Barton, for example, Graham, who, as you mentioned, like at Man City, stubbed out a cigar in a teammate's eye and mm-hmm. uh, got in trouble with the law for beating a young teenager to a pulp outside of McDonald's in the middle of the night. Um, some reprehensible acts that he committed. But then he tried to reform himself and became this guy who went to art galleries and listened to the Smiths and was trying to become this intellectual, this pseudo-intellectual. Yeah, sort quoting of Nietzsche. And... Yeah, exactly. And it was like, come on, come on, mate. That's, <laughs> we're, not, we're not falling for that one. But maybe an, a more interesting case as well, and uh, I think we're talking about this off air, Joe, is the idea of Troy Deeney or the, the, the career of Troy Deeney. He also uh, went to prison, um, was guilty of a fray, um, but he is, Troy Deeney is not, Joe, generally one of those maligned players in the same categories as others who have committed violent crimes. And maybe there is, that, that plays into the idea of uh, him being a reformed character and a bit more likable and, and palatable than some of these other players we've talked about. I mean, yeah, this is this is a tricky one, right? Because I guess I'm doing a lot of fence setting today and I don't really have a problem with that in this particular conversation in, in, unless I know these people personally, I'm very hesitant to make grand sweeping judgments about reform and, and how we as a society should react to criminal justice. This is not a conversation I expected to be having when I, uh, when I started this work week. Um, but I mean, not that it's, not that it's bad. I just think, I don't think it's productive to try and determine a a grand sweeping generalization about how we should think about this stuff, right? Depending on people's own past experiences with these these actions from people in their own lives, or or how they've been wronged and and abused at times, like it's a hard thing, and I don't really feel comfortable making any judgments on these players in really a reformed kind of way unless I I know them, and maybe that's harsh, maybe it's not. I don't I don't really know. No, I- this is a tricky one, guys. It is, and, and 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 I will go off what you said there, Joe. That what it what it leads me to is the kind of the conundrum that we always face, and I think a lot of people who talk about sport for a living face of how much do you want to know about these people, and how much should that inform the coverage? Because there's the idea that all you're like if all you're doing is watching these players play mentality maybe is going to be part of it of like, oh, like, like Muhammad Salah has that next level work ethic. And then you want to know where that comes from. I can understand that. But sometimes when we learn more about these players, the more you learn, maybe the more you do see the reality of who they are or where they come from. But it also then when you understand that you see the way they're covered and it changes that perception. So Messi in the tax fraud case is a good example of that for me that I remember profiles of him about how he's just this humble guy who wants to go home and eat lunch with his wife and his brother and then he relaxes and you know he's not he, like and so you get this squeaky clean image of a person. I feel like that's kind of how Ryan Giggs was for a long time. And then you hear these other things, Messi's case, I, I would say, much less severe. That said, I mean, found guilty, sentenced to 24 months, I think it was. But in Spain, under 24 months or under, you don't have to serve if it's your first offense. But still, like he's convicted. So it then makes it harder for me to read these profiles about this super humble guy who comes from poor backgrounds and cares about the plight of the working class. It's like, does he, though? So I, I think that's where I go back to 
how much do you want to know about them? Because then you get accused of, of putting your head in the sand. And I think there's certain players that you can't overlook and you have to sort of keep what their allegations are, what they've been convicted of in mind when you're talking about them, because there is an element of responsibility there that you don't want to praise somebody who's been found guilty of drunk driving or, you know, vehicular manslaughter for being a, just such a, a great on-field presence and a, such a strong leader. You run into that conundrum as well. So it's a really difficult line to walk. And I think nuance is probably the way to go. I um I wrote my university dissertation on Bob Dylan and the concept of the separation of author and text. I'm going somewhere mm-hmm. with this, by the way. I mean, so, that is a great person to write that about. It is indeed. <laughs> so like Bob Dylan writing all these countercultural protest songs in the 1960s. Um, and then when he's asked in interviews, what, what is this song about? He says, this song's about three minutes. I'm not, I'm not a protest guy. I'm, I'm not countercultural. I'm not a rebel. And he was very clear that this is just my work. And whether he's whether he was telling the truth or not, he's the the image he was presenting is I'm just a guy. These are the songs they speak for themselves, and I, I kind of relate that to maybe how some people, or maybe we should or shouldn't look at soccer. Do we separate the work they do on the field from their character off of it, the art they produce, if you will? Like I think we've had a conversation before, Taylor, about Ronaldo, and we should be very clear: anything that's uh, he's accused of, they, it's merely allegations at this point. But it would maybe change the feeling you have watching a Manchester United game. I mean, it already has. And I, and I think that's why there are, there are certain players that I think you can sort of see it in the way they get discussed or a lot of the times don't get discussed. Like Frank Ribery is one. Kareem Benzema is another where it's it's players who have credible accusations or allegations against them. Ribery has the underground nightclub underage sex ring uh, scandal that he admitted to and just said he didn't know that people were underage. Benzema was a part of that. There's the Babuena uh, extortion case that I think also had Gibral Cisse involved and Benzema. And so when you know that there are these sort of off-field actions that do show you that maybe the person isn't worth saying, like, what a great guy he seems to be. You have to take it in, in, into consideration, and it does have to be part of the way you think about that player, not because it means they're a better or worse, worse footballer, but because I would like to be a, a better human. And I think to basically turn a blind eye to other incidents that, that I find reprehensible because they're really good at scoring goals, that is sort of where I end up finding myself in a bit of a conundrum because I want to just turn on a TV and watch a game and not have to think about these things. But simultaneously, not having to think about these things is how these things happen. So it's, again, a delicate balance. It is. And it's a very interesting debate as well. Um, the latest uh, edition of John Oliver's HBO show, by the way, there's, there's a line in it where he says the alternate title for this show was British Guy Tells You Why You Can't Like That Thing You Like Anymore, um, which is, <laughs> I, I almost feel is kind of what we're doing at the moment. So um, yeah, I well, think- I tell you what, let's let's end on a positive note by just continuing uh, to rain negativity on John Terry, because uh, you, you mentioned the racism incident. Uh, Wayne Bridge probably has some thoughts. There are also the stories that I had long heard as being rumor, but I increasingly see written as factual that he was one of the players who I think drunkenly was like mocking American travelers on 9-11 in an airport because flights were suspended. So the Chelsea players allegedly uh, all had some drinks and then were like running around making airplane noises when they saw Americans. And to me, that has always cemented my hate for John Terry. Uh, So I think, yeah, I think we can just all agree that John Terry deserves a lot of the negativity that came his way. 
He's not our best, Taylor. He's not our best. I can, <laughs> I can tell you that much for sure. Uh, thank you very much for the question, Regav. As always, we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach? Well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, we are back taking your listener questions. Here's one from Sophie Koss. I had a crazy dream last night, says Sophie, where a two-point goal was introduced. This is achieved only by nutmegging the keeper. Brilliant. (laughs) If this were to be introduced, uh, how would teams change their strategies? Would goals become more frequent due to keepers focusing harder on not allowing the two-pointer versus guarding the most room possible? Uh, Joe, this makes me think of, I think it might have been like a kick TV sketch or an old sketch on YouTube. Maybe it was an April Fool of um, a goalkeeper's outfit that has a net between the legs to prevent nutmegging. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's the development we would make in the two-point goal situation here. I love that, Ryan. First of all, uh, I have two other things before I actually get to Sophie's question. Uh, First, I guess second now, was this a real dream? Because if so, that's incredible. And I want to have dreams that are as cool as this one. And third, are Sophie Koss and Matt Koss related or or in some sort of romantic relationship if so i i don't know that's just a beautiful tss listener connection if it's not that's that's okay too when we still appreciate sophie and matt but setting those things aside and getting to sophie's actual question i don't think this this really fun two-point goal rule would change 
anything on a macro tactical level, right? As far as game, changes to how soccer is played, you still have to get close to the goal, right? And you still have to create a shooting opportunity. And you have to do all that stuff before you can even think about trying to score a two-pointer. But at the same time, I do think individual training would change. And I think how specific players are are brought up and developed, I think that could change. I think goalkeepers really would be trained to avoid getting nutmegged at all costs because two goals can change a game. Goalkeeper coaches kind of already do that stuff, um, but I think it would be emphasized a bit more. And for outfield players, they would be trained potentially to aim for the nutmeg more than they do now. And, you know, like Sophie's saying, this could have some weird effects and could increase goals per game if goalkeepers overcorrect or, or shooters just stop going for the meg and start going for the other parts of the net. It creates this kind of water polo handball chaos element. And I think this could be a lot of fun, guys. Graham, uh, uh, what what are your thoughts on this one? Uh, yeah. First, I'll say I played re- uh, rec soccer last Friday and I got nutmegged while I was in goal. It was the worst feeling in the world. But does it, is it going to encourage a certain type of player, like the player who goes for the Penenka penalty? He's going to be the one who tries the two-pointer, right? So whenever I play five-a-side, that is actually what I count, and I'm not even kidding. I don't count the goals. It's all about how many players I can nutmeg, uh, <laughs> and I'll try and get up to double figures. And I'm it's I'm not very good at soccer in general, but it's, um, that's one of the things I'm better at. That and keepy-uppies are like my two things. So I feel like this this might have this change in the rules and the laws may have come too late for me. Like this could have been my route into the professional game. Um, but I was thinking about where you would use this like that that was my first point of thinking about this was how 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 would this change games where would you want this and i'm thinking teams chasing late goals right that's where you would want if you're 1-0 down and you're expected to win the game you know where a point maybe isn't so useful to you then this would become useful and so teams chasing late goals they tend to go for you know crosses into the box play long ball for, play long balls forward they become much more direct and so i wonder if you might see teams actually start to play it through the middle more you know you're obviously crosses and uh, long balls forward it's going to be difficult to nutmeg a goalkeeper from that route and so I wonder if you might see teams try and kind of jam the ball through the middle of opposition teams to create those opportunities in the box where you could feasibly nutmeg a goalkeeper so maybe maybe it would be a route to having less of a, a direct game in, in closing stages. You both took this way more seriously than I did. I say that much. Uh, Taylor, what do you think about this one? I think personally, it's it's a it's a it's a wild dream, but for a two point goal, I think a different mechanism should be. It should be volleys outside the box, two points. Ooh. Two. And I think volleys straight from a corner, like without the ball touching the ground, yep. are three points. That counts. Let's make it. Let's go even further with that one. Yeah, I like that idea. If we are gonna. If we are going to have these experimentations and the, the changing changing points, I also love a while ago there was a commercial when you had like an expanding and retracting goal, sort of like the windmill in mini golf, and you have to know when it's going to expand <laughs> and when it's going to contract to hit your shot on frame. Uh, yeah, let, let's go with that. But also while we're going with a, a two-pointer for a nutmeg, I think it, weirdly it could make games more dull is I think where I ended up. Maybe I'm just uh, a, a, a hater of fun. But I think oftentimes it is the goalkeeper rushing out and getting megged when they're trying to stop a one-on-one. So I could see defenses trying to limit the ability to play through to let that happen. And then I could also see forwards trying to be too cute in going for the meg and not taking clear-cut goal-scoring chances. So uh, maybe maybe I'm just feeling dour about things. But I, I was leaning towards, I don't know if it would create a more free-scoring game the way expanding and retracting goals would <laughs> and uh, NBA Jam. Like, if you hit from here in this one moment, it's worth five points. Let's go that way instead. Yeah. 
If soccer needs anything, it's more complex rules. That's what I think. Oh, obviously. Anyway. Obviously. Yeah. Put a second ball on the pitch for stoppage yeah. time. There we go, Multi-ball! There we go. <laughs> Start taking players off. Yeah, that's what I like. That's what we want to do. All that kind of stuff. Uh, Sophie, thank you very much for the question. And listener, if you've had a crazy dream, just tell us about it. It might be good. <laughs> um, Gabe Schenker in touch as well. Uh, what are the most important factors for FIFA to consider in, every, in evaluating potential 26 World Cup host cities? For example, says Gabe, I think one of Cincinnati's best-selling points would be its proximity to other big cities that aren't hosting, including Chicago, but not sure if that's actually important. Uh, My understanding is there are going to be 16 venues used in 2026. Uh, The number's looking like 11 in the USA, two in Canada, uh, and that makes, was that three in Mexico? Yeah, Um, three. That sounds about right, my math there. Um, and this month, FIFA and their delegation completed its first rounds of visits to World Cup host city candidates. They've already inspected Boston, Nashville, Atlanta, Orlando, DC, Baltimore, New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia, and Miami. So it looks like there's about 17 US cities contending, Joe, for 11 slots. The one rule I found is that uh, for group stage games in the World Cup, there must be a minimum 40,000 capacity and 80,000 for opening matches and finals so no mls specific stadiums in the running by that metric joe which is a bummer right at least in a way i i getting kind of bummed out thinking about all of these games being played in american football stadiums and that is the reality and it always was going to be the reality for the u.s based games it'll be different in, in mexico certainly but i mean that is a, a bit of a bummer but it speaks to one important trait for these host cities Market size and venue size are absolutely massive, partially because it's required. But also, I mean, that just makes you a more appealing destination, right? You want a big atmosphere. You want a lot of people there. So think LA. They have a couple of stadiums that are involved in in their bid. You think New York and in, in New Jersey in that area and Miami as well. Those are the three kind of really big guaranteed markets as far as I read it. So that's one important factor. Weather and, and, and your stadium's indoorness. New word. Just invented it. Not Indoorification real, is the term, Indorification, Ryan, that is beautiful, right? It's going to be toasty in July. Having stadiums that are climate controlled or being in a more temperate outdoor climate, e- I can Just see that being important as someone, <laughs> yeah, as someone, <laughs> as someone who lives in uh, the desert where it is hot and it is still hot and we are in October, having some, some nicer weather or a stadium that's indoor is huge, right? So think Seattle, they, they could have some solid weather even with that outdoor uh, clo- non, non-closed stadium. Denver as well, San Francisco, some more of those temperate summer climates could be big. And then stadiums with indoor, uh, indooritude. I forgot what we said already, Ryan. Indoor stadiums, darn it. (laughs) Dallas, LA, Atlanta, those kinds of places. I don't know, guys, how big of a factor Gabe's idea about being close to other cities are. I don't know how important that is. I do think like infrastructure, city infrastructure, transportation, hotels, their ability to handle a massive event in, in how the city is built and constructed and, and how they can react to hosting this many people in a place. I think that's going to be important. Yeah. But I don't know how important it is to be close to, say, Chicago, for an example. Can I, can I jump in here? Um, because I went to a briefing for the Scottish FA's bid for Glasgow to be a host city for Euro 2020 away by a number of years. And so they, they mentioned it was the logistical side that, 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 um, that briefing brought up a lot of things that I hadn't thought about in terms of what's important to be a host city. So you mentioned their hotel rooms, Joe. That is apparently a really important one. And this was a, a big concern for Qatar 
Um, but they're actually bringing in large cruise ships to provide accommodation, which I don't know if I would be uh, on board, pun intended, with that Has idea. Has something happened, Graham? Has something always kind of consistently happened when it comes to cruise ships that are just uh, floating excuses for monstrosities to occur? What? Hmm? They're great during COVID, I heard. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Let's hope the pandemic is, is gone by the time that we've got uh, thousands of fans on, on oh, cruise boy. ships. Um, but yeah, hotel rooms is, is one thing. Transport, so I, I, I'm probably not um, mentioning anything groundbreaking here, but airports, you know, Glasgow argued we, we have three international airports within an hour of the city, train lines, any metro links, stuff like that. Um, and then... I guess one thing that they mentioned during that presentation was training facilities for teams as well. So in Glasgow, we have Celtic and Rangers have state-of-the-art facilities. We also have the Orium Centre in Edinburgh, which was where a number of teams were based during the Euros. So it's not just the stadium. It's where these teams are going to, are going to train and be based, um, during the, during the tournament. And then the other thing that they kept on going about with, on about at this um, briefing was legacy and the, what a tournament leaves behind. So these organizations, they want to feel very important and they want to feel like being a host city can change the city in some way. And so you get things like um, establishment of, of youth schemes or it could be the construction of, of certain facilities or local pitches for children. And if you look through previous World Cups, South Africa, America, I guess a legacy. MLS is a bit of a legacy for the 94 World Cup. There, there's legacy is always a big consideration when picking the cities that they can go to. So that, th- those were some of the things that I took away from that uh, Glasgow briefing. Uh, Taylor, one interesting note I found was about uh, the Rose Bowl and SoFi Stadium in Los Angeles, both of which are contenders apparently, uh, and presumably only one of them is going to make the cut. Um, one of them probably be a good candidate for the final, uh, if if not Meadowlands in New Jersey. Um, and the argument being, or the consensus being, that SoFi Stadium uh, would be the better event by FIFA standards because of its better media and corporate facilities, and they can sell us more Budweiser there. Yeah, I mean, I think I I don't even know it might end up being both of them because L.A., they seem to want to put a bunch of games there. So, yeah, I think it'll be L.A., New York. I think coastal cities are probably always going to have appeal because you can get there more easily with international travel. And I think the size of the airport probably plays into that. I believe I'm correct in saying that Kansas City is actively expanding their airport with an eye towards maybe being one of the host cities. And and I do think that will be maybe a, a consideration, too. But also, ultimately, and this goes back to my cynicism about FIFA, like they put a game in Brazil in a rainforest that flooded. Like I think South <laughs> Africa, there were plenty of stories about empty stadiums where they're giving away tickets to just get people in. I don't know if FIFA are really that worried when it comes to the United States, because I think there's an expectation that wherever they are, they're going to sell out and they're going to have people there. So it kind of doesn't matter. I personally would love to see more like cities that don't always get the the attention like i think if you go abroad the places that people know are Miami, New York, Los Angeles, and weirdly Kentucky, usually because of KFC. Uh, but I would love for Kansas City to get a game or Denver or somewhere in Ohio, and I'll let all those fan bases fight it out. Minneapolis would be cool. I think places that are sort of maybe under the radar, both as like global soccer cities, but also as just cool places to be. Pawnee. Portland would be another one. Yeah, and Pawnee, Indiana, of course. Pawnee, Indiana <laughs> should be the host city for sure. 
Yeah, could have a rat mouse concert before the kickoff. Yeah, That'd be awesome. <laughs> love it. Uh, mouse, I believe you'll find it's mouse rat because rat mouse, mouse rat. already existed. Oh, <laughs> sacrilege! I apologise for that one. Um, thank you very much for the question, Gabe. One last one for this episode from Robert Cordova, who says, "Will Sydney Larue ever play for the USA again?" Sydney Larue Taylor is thirty-one years old. She plays on mm-hmm. the Orlando Pride right now. Last rep the USWNT in twenty seventeen. Your thoughts, sir? Uh, my thoughts are that I don't think she will, but I began this by saying no, I, I don't think so at all, and I'm more open to it than I thought I would be, because she is having a solid season, eight goals and 19 matches, and there are arguments for why it would make sense. She's played for Vlatko previously, she's actively scoring goals, you could bring her in as that sort of veteran presence, uh, and we do know that like uh, players in the women's game oftentimes when they've played for the national team when they're at that level do last longer so though she is uh like plus 30 i think she, you know carly lloyd has shown that you can play until you're 40 uh or almost 40 so there are those arguments but i think what it comes down to is that with vlatko antonovsky with the way the olympics went he probably wants to freshen up the squad get new faces in and sort of evolve the team to the next level the way he wants them to be move some of the more veteran players on and get a new core group to kind of build around and so if you're going to do that then bringing in Sydney LaRue for example that doesn't quite vibe with that approach so uh, that would be the argument why she wouldn't so in some ways it's almost like she's a victim of the present circumstances of the national team I would also add that she gets in the interviews I've seen of, of her, she gets asked about the national team a lot and about her thoughts on certain players or how they're performing. And I don't really hear her say, I, you know, I'm still in that conversation. I want to be a part of the team. I have a goal of playing for the national team again. Maybe I've missed those conversations. I welcome you all to uh, to to let me know. But it it seems like she herself maybe isn't making it as much of a priority for her as it is continuing to play in uh, her club career and raising her kids. Joe, do you concur with this opinion? By the way, I will say, Taylor, um, I saw, I read her referred to as a veteran, and you mentioned the word veteran as well uh, just now. 31 years old, it upsets me. I'm nearly 38. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at this point, isn't like a 24-year-old a veteran when we have 17-year-olds playing regular minutes for yeah. clubs around the world? What, does that make me geriatric by soccer standards now? I don't know. I, oh, man, what is the euphemistic yeah, expression? Even by Julian Nagelsmann standards, you are yeah. geriatric. <laughs> oh, good boy. All right, Joe, what do you think? Ryan, if you're not riding an electric longboard to work, you are, you've done something wrong. <laughs> so let's start there. Um, no, I mean, the idea here is that between the upper levels of the past player pool, the very recent past player pool, Megan Rapino, Tobin Heath, players like that, Kristen Press, between those players and now between some of the younger attacking talents that are coming up, there just really isn't a huge need. And this sounds harsh and callous, and I don't mean it to, but there really isn't a massive need for the national team to bring in a player like Sidney LaRue. A veteran, Joe. A veteran. A veteran who probably does not ride a longboard to work, Ryan, if that makes you feel any better. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it probably would be a little bit of, of a... If you're coming at it from a public relations standpoint, the the knock against the U.S. women's national team going back to Jill Ellis has been that it's sort of this core group. They're always going to be brought in. It's always going to be the same faces. Maybe you'll get one or two new faces at the tail end of the roster. And so if you're stressing the next evolution but bringing in players who've been there before, 
it becomes harder to sort of advocate for the we're freshening it up, we're changing the way things operate, we're changing the way we approach these games. So I think maybe even from that standpoint, not that he necessarily cares, he, Vlatko, cares about what the media is saying and writing, but it would be a sort of immediate backlash, I think. Very good. Robert, I hope that gets to the core of your question, and I hope we've done a good job of answering all questions on today's show. Taylor Rockwell, thank you so much, as always, good sir. Thank you very much. I'm going to take 30 more seconds to say, in reading about Sydney LaRue, I read an article about how she was frustrated that the WNBA, her WNBA salary doesn't really pay for, like, provide enough for childcare. And in reading that article, I learned, shouts to the WNBA for, amongst many other provisions, having a clause in there for players who, like, reach veteran status that they will help finance surrogacy, adoption, or fertility treatments. That is a thing that you, like, don't have to worry about if you are a player in the men's game and you definitely do if you want to have a long career in the women's game. So shouts to the WNBA for making some proactive steps that I think other uh, leagues could follow. Indeed. Thank you, Taylor. And thank you very much, Joe Larry. Would you like to step on my outro as well? No, I'll leave that to Taylor. (laughs) Ryan, Ryan, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, five more thoughts real quick for me. (laughs) And Graham Rutherford, a pleasure as always, sir. Thank you very much. That's no problem. I will never step on your outro. This is about saying it. Bye as emotionless as possible for me. Goodbye, Ryan. Good boy, Graham. Good boy. Listener, thank you very much. Bye! <laughs>